0: Welcome to ArchNet Sessions. Today's podcast is sponsored by BQE Software, the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software built with the needs of architects in mind. It'll help you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. And for a limited time, all startup architectural firms that have been established within the last 24 months qualify for two free licenses of ArchiOffice online for one year. Go check it out at bqe.com forward slash startups all right i'm paul and i'm here with my co-hosts amelia donna and ken this week we'll be discussing a recent story published in the new york times entitled the dream life of driverless cars authored by jeff Mana, friend of archonix and our guest on this week's episode thanks for joining us jeff yeah thanks for having me so your article in The Times looked at the work of ScanLab projects. It's a, a small London studio specializing in 3D scanning and the research that they're conducting about how autonomous vehicles are perceiving the urban environment. Can you talk a little bit about the story and what, what drew you to this?
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, I'd say that I've you know, been interested in the work of ScanLab projects for pretty much as long as I've known about what they're doing. They formed basically right after graduating from the Bartlett School of Architecture in London. And even as students, they had been doing some really interesting experimental work, trying to push laser scanning technology into places where scanning isn't always the most appropriate form of representation. And so the result of that is that you get these really interesting, sort of unanticipated scanning effects that they began to really accentuate in their work. I'm sure we can come back and talk about that in a little bit. But what really kind of drew me to the story was the. Learning that they were now applying these kinds of representational lessons that they had learned from laser scanning devices that they had applied elsewhere, they were now looking at how driverless cars use lidar. And so, lidar is basically a, it's it's a laser based radar system. It's like visual radar, and that's one of many ways that that driverless cars use to navigate the urban environment. And so, it just seemed really interesting to me to find out more about what it was that they were trying to reveal by exploring the notion that cars themselves are now, or machines, you know, are are, um, are perceiving the urban environment and what is it that they might be seeing that human beings might be missing.
2: And one of the major criticisms immediately brought up by a, a person you mentioned in the piece is that, you know, we've kind of seen the modes of thought that are underlining this historical advancement. We've seen these before with the idea of, okay, if the car operates this way, what if we built cities around them? <laughs> and of course, like that's the immediate concern is that, it's amazing all these things that the cars are being able to do and, and the safety um, implications for what if we no longer had human error involved in, in driving. But what you bring up in the piece, and I think in a really like effective but not necessarily finger-wagging, worrying way, is that do we really want to go this route? Like We could easily optimize things once this gets to a point of actual feasibility and like large-scale implementation do we really want to do this? I, I don't know, do you have personal feelings about your utopian visions for driverless cars that kind of changed when you were writing this piece? Um, well,
1: I guess I, I wouldn't really say that my opinion changed too much over the course of writing the article, although it did make me more optimistic, in fact, that driverless cars will be here sooner than we expect, and that it'll be absorbed into the urban environment in a in a in a more what's the word, like subliminal way so that it won't be quite as bad as I had initially feared. But yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with what you're saying, which is that the irony here is that, you know, we're being presented with a technology that could for, you know, the first time in generations, reprioritize the pedestrian experience in the sense that, you know, it would be if you believe the hype, you know, physically impossible to be hit by a driverless car because it will know exactly, you know, it'll be be tracking you and your kid or, you know, you and your grandparents as you walk down the street and know exactly when to stop. And it won't be able to even, um, you know, get into an accident with 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 pedestrians, etc. And that we can give over more of the urban environment itself to parkland and to uh, sidewalks and to, uh, you know, people actually going into the streets themselves as a kind of shared public space. But the irony of all this, obviously, then, like you were saying, is that because the driverless car has such an intense need for how it interacts with the built environment, that we'll simply be sort of repeating the sins of the fathers, so to speak, by building into our cities the driverless vehicle in a way that just enshrines the car all over again. And risks, in fact, doing it in a much more strange and all-pervasive way, you know, where these cars are communicating digitally and wirelessly and they're using non-visual means of communicating with one another and that there's going to be this realm of uh I guess you could say machine interaction that takes over the urban environment that human beings literally will not even be able to know is happening let alone navigate around or comprehend. And so obviously yeah that's a pretty sizable risk, you know that that you know will will make our, city, our our cities even less comprehensible to pedestrians in the name of trying to make the make them safer and that cars, ironically, are going to have a kind of second dawn where they really, uh, you know, dominate the inner core.
3: There's so much to talk about here with this. And I love everything you just said. I feel like I could pull any one of those sentences and we could go off for an hour about it. The first thing I'll point to it, though, is the, the uh, and it's something I'll add in the show notes is um, Jason Torchinsky, who's a car writer for Jalopnik, wrote an article about how you could prank driverless cars. And basically, if no one's in the car, You could herd them by, as you were saying, Jeff, they won't hit a person, right? So you could get a group of people to gather around them and you could herd them to where you want them to go by moving closer to them, moving away from them, moving closer to them, you know, to to make them move in the direction you want to go. And the thought that we could be interacting with our cars in that way, I just find really hilarious. But, But that's all fun and games. On a much deeper level, as you say, this has the opportunity, and I'm generally very optimistic about driverless cars. But this really has the opportunity to completely change our cityscapes, but always with the car movement at the core of how things get laid out. Now, the huge benefit to that that I see is the lack of parking lots, right? The idea is that we would need, uh, we would need fewer cars overall because you don't need to leave your car parked anywhere. And to me, if you change the need for parking storage space, that opens up really great possibilities for better city design. But I've also been really interested in bus rapid transit, which to me is a way of saying, OK, we already have this enormous infrastructure devoted to cars. If we were to completely move to some other form of transit, that seems to me like an enormous waste of embodied energy and existing, existing infrastructure that does have some good sides to it. So if we can reuse that infrastructure, but use it in a way that's much more efficient, safe, energy saving, all of those things, and convenient too. I feel like it's an actual, I I feel like there's a net gain personally.
1: Yeah. And I feel like with these different modes of transit, I think that the most important sort of approach to have is definitely not, you know, um, all or nothing with one particular mode. And so you could easily imagine a constellation of different modes of transit where self-driving cars take you to a kind of hub station where you then get and bus rapid transit which itself would be self-driving, so you'd have a driverless rapid bus, mass transit, which could then take you either to a subway or to a regional rail system. Or I don't know if we'll actually get to it or not, but you know, with Philadelphia, the UNESCO city, you know, they've got a, a pretty uh, extensive regional rail system called SEPTA. So you could easily imagine, you know, um, the, all of these different modes coming together and, and interacting. You know, but to, the real question then is, you know, is there also the chance for you know monopolistic behavior in the next 10 to let's say 30 years in within the driverless car industry where you know if the somewhat of an urban legend but you know in the in the the, the idea that general motors or ford uh, uh, to be completely honest I'm, I'm blanking now on exactly how the how the story is meant to go but you know bought up all of the the above ground transit lines in cities like los angeles and then tore them down after they owned them all in order to force people to purchase private automobiles you know what are there are there going to be ways of kind of monopolizing the urban environment from the perspective of a driverless car company and what kind of spatial demands will they make of the urban environments i think that these are all questions that we just simply don't know yet because we also haven't worked out the liability or even the ownership schemes for who is it that controls these things in the first place so i think that you know for the for the time being what's so interesting about the driverless car question is that you come up with are you constantly coming up against walls of questions that don't have any real answer right now? So the entire industry is is a kind of is a is a realm of speculation, and so that's both frustrating, but it also makes it a really interesting topic of conversation because there's so many ways to to approach the issue.
4: Jeff, two questions: Why is the industry solely fo- or seems to be focused on such a small scale? Uh, is it is it because there's a lot more passenger vehicles, and why not focus on? over-the-road truck driving, or the, the kinds of commercial vehicles that would definitely benefit and be more prone to accidents and, and would certainly benefit from this kind of technology, one. And then is the processing power of this um, on the level of like a deep blue, where it could think 10,000 know, moves ahead? I often find myself on the road, and I don't think the problem is the, a driverless car. It's a brainless car. And it's usually the person behind the wheel that I have more of a problem with, and my driving skills tend to be much more offensive, both offensive and offensive because i can <laughs> I have to manipulate my i have to be a, a, i have to be almost an indie car driver so what is the what is the capability of the technology in terms of thinking ten thousand moves ahead or what have you
1: well yeah let's uh I'll, I'll take the, the the first question first um, well there there is in fact actually a lot of research now into driverless trucks and driverless i guess we might even call it driverless infrastructure um in the sense that you can if you can get this technology into the logistics chain then you can easily imagine a, a company like UPS or any number of intermediary firms and corporations that are trying to get you know package a to location B. And if you don't need to hire a driver or if you don't need to worry about any of the various factors that go into this, you know, a driver-based car system, then you can you vastly improve the kind of efficiencies of, of the delivery system. And so you are actually seeing um, experiments with um, driverless semis. There's actually talk of an entirely uh, driverless corridor that, you know, these things get, get sort of pitched for. There's one that they're talking about in Western Canada they're even looking into different kinds of highway stru- uh, infrastructure like this, even in the Los Angeles region, where you might have a driverless truck route that goes from the port of Los Angeles down in Long Beach up through the city and allows driverless semi-trucks to to deliver goods throughout the region. So I think you do see that um, aspect of, of, of the industry. Um, as far as why car companies are putting so much energy into it, I mean, one is just sort of that's where the market seems to be going and there's a gradual Transformation of the cars that we even, you even see coming onto the market today in any case. So you see things with, um, you know, cars arrive with lane departure warnings, with, um, parking assist, with the sort of, a um, emergency braking if it detects an object ahead of the car, et cetera, et cetera. And you're already seeing these kinds of technologies sort of being encrusted onto the, the, the vehicles that we already have. And so in some ways, they're just sort of following the market. And then in the other, I guess the most, uh, sort of, the most obvious, I guess, answer to the question is just that the, a lot of the people that are doing this aren't thinking philanthropically. They're thinking in terms of where is the future market going to be. You know, I, I think that the fact that a driverless car answers certain questions that are plaguing society, I think, is great, but I don't think that that's why they're investing all the money. It's a. It's kind of a, a coincidentally positive side effect of driverless vehicles that they have all of these other things. But I don't think it's that, you know, someone concerned with bringing more green space and parkland into the cities decided to start investing in driverless car technology. I think it's that they wanted to sell more driverless cars or, or make sure that cars are still a relevant mode of transit in the future. And so they're doing it because that's what their market base is calling for. And as far as the, the capacity, I mean, it, it really is going to continue to go up. I mean, it's almost like a Moore's law of driverless vehicles. I mean, every every year, driverless vehicles are going to have more computational power. But the interesting question there then is 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 less so is is you know is, is is not so much can we compare one car to a supercomputer or what kind of metaphor or what kind of scale could we compare it to? It's more just looking at all the very different techniques that driverless cars use to navigate. And so, in some ways, that brings us back to the New York Times article, which is. Looking at specific forms of of perception, I guess you could say, to use that metaphorically, that these cars use. One of which is lidar, the the laser based radar, which is constantly scanning the built environment and or, or just the environment in general, and is constantly getting visual feedback from the things that it that it quote unquote sees. But there are also other ways, even RFID. There's GPS based systems of navigation, and then there's this wireless communication between the car and the other cars around it. Or even you can imagine that if you're in a driverless vehicle, your car doesn't need to see a red light or a green light. It simply needs to get a wireless signal to tell it that there's an intersection approaching and that, or rather that it's approaching an intersection that it needs to slow down or stop. But then also there's some really interesting other journalistic work that has been done, including a friend of mine named Alexis Magical, who who wrote a, an interesting article for The Atlantic about a year ago that was looking at how Google is using cartography and Figuring out ways to simultaneously embed active cartographic representations of the streetscape into each car so that each car has a kind of, it's almost like a, a super atlas of the world on on board every every car so that it knows where to turn, it knows where every alley is, it knows where, you know, every conceivable sort of, you know, dead end or, or upcoming left-hand turn is in the city. But it is also networked with other cars so that as they drive around the city, they are constantly offering real-time cartographic feedback. And that is being Effectively, what kind of massaged into that larger model, and that so the cars are constantly updating what these maps look like and how they are shared, and so even in that, um, and um, I apologize because this is a very long answer, but um, uh, you know there were there were some really interesting points that Will and Matt from ScanLab Projects made when I was interviewing them for the piece, where they were talking about the fact that if we start to rely on driverless cars and their passage through the city to produce for us maps that are considered up to date of how the city operates or, or you know, where the streets are and where the alleys are. What is interesting is that we're going to find that certain streets are more heavily mapped than others and that we'll have these kinds of dead zone or, or almost like dark streets, you might say, where cars don't often drive, whether it's an alley that people tend not to think of as a route between one street and another, or it's simply a quiet secondary route that only the locals, uh, you know, are really um, used to taking. And that you might find that certain streets, almost like an old country road being reabsorbed into the forest, you might find that certain streets almost digitally disappear and become these kind of remnant geographies inside the maps that these cars are using. And so in any case, uh, it's things like that that really open up the the the. the Conversation to the again this realization that we really don't know all of the implications that driverless cars bring with them, and it will be really really fascinating to see more and more of these effects as as the cars begin to roll out into the
4: environment. So it brings up a, a, a thought. Then, uh, are they talking about occupantless cars? Or could, uh, I can imagine a father wanting to control where his daughter's going to be and, and actually <laughs> take control of the vehicle from, from their app on their phone and say, well, you, I said you'd be home at midnight and here it is at one o'clock in the morning. I'm going to redirect your vehicle back home. Is that something <laughs> that conceivably that would make sense to me?
1: Well, totally. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, there's a couple things there. I mean, yes, they are looking at the possibility of totally occupantless vehicles. And so those would be like, uh, you could almost call them ground delivery drones. So for example, you've ordered something from Seamless or Instacart and this little pod shows up, you know, it looks like a Google car but you know immediately what it is you get a ping on your cell phone you go downstairs and you pick up you know a hot lunch or you pick up you know whatever it is that you've ordered and so you know you can see the logistics industry being totally revolutionized by these kinds of approaches also just very sort of parenthetically I'll mention that that also changes the notion of what it means for a building to have an address in the sense that You know, addresses are basically for human beings. So if, you know, let's say you live at, you know, 16 Main Street and your friend lives at 22 Main Street, but there is a shared package that is being delivered between the two of you, or there is a specific location on the street that a car needs to get to, similar to where you can choose where an Uber is meant to pick you up if you, you know, when you when you choose your pickup location on the Uber map. But that location that that car drives to doesn't necessarily correspond to one of these numbers that human beings have given these specific buildings. And so it's interesting to imagine then that we'll have almost like a sort of a Precambrian explosion of addresses throughout the city where, you know, cars will go to very specific places in between buildings or combining certain buildings, et cetera, et cetera. But in any case, some of the interesting questions of driverless cars touch on your last question there. I mean, so you know, you could really quickly substitute, you know, it's not just a father who wants his daughter to come home at midnight. You know, maybe it's a hacker who doesn't want you to get somewhere, or maybe it's the police who want to make sure that you can't drive away from a crime that you supposedly committed, <laughs> you know, or you can imagine it's the NSA that is is tracking the movement of somebody who is, you know, trying to get from Seattle to Portland after ha- having crossed the Canadian border, and they can take control of the car. One of the people I interviewed in the New York Times piece is a, a really interesting professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon University, um, this guy named Illa Norbach. And um, he's not only just a, a font of, of these kinds of things uh, and I, I, I like sort of speculative ideas. Um, what's great about his job is that he, his, his job literally is to just come up with insane scenarios that cars need to deal with or that robots and other machines need to figure out a way to comprehend or react to. So he's just constantly coming up with strange narrative scenarios. But he was pointing out that, you know, let's say there is a, a collapse of a bridge in the middle of a city, or that there is a sort of pop-up construction because of a water main break, some kind of unpredictable infrastructural failure has occurred, and it has not had time to percolate throughout all of the linked cartographic systems of these cars, and the driverless vehicles don't necessarily know that this is coming up in four or five blocks. And so as you're approaching a negative traffic situation for these cars, you know, you might want to switch to manual driving because they are unable to maybe navigate the scenario up ahead or maybe a tree has fallen down and they don't know how to get around it. But so they were saying that, you know, let's say you've been out um, or rather, sorry, Illa was saying that, you know, let's say you've been out drinking all night, which is the whole point of, you know, why you're in a driverless car because you you can ride home drunk. Um, But now let's say your car starts to ping and you need to take over manual control. Well, it'd be illegal for you to do that because you've You're intoxicated, so he was just you know one of the possibilities. Then is that you know almost like we have drone warfare on the other side of the world that's being run by people in Nevada and you know air air bases in the United States. Would it be possible that there's going to be these bizarre sort of you know warehouses full of people just sort of sitting there waiting to take over the manual control of driverless vehicles just in case there is a flat tire or there is a tree down or a bridge is collapsed or there's some other kind of event that calls for taking over the the a car. And so, I mean, that's a totally other scenario now, you know, who are these people? What is it like to have that kind of day job? And then also, are there possibilities for political, you know, uh, problems in that kind of scenario where somebody can flip a switch in a warehouse in Arizona and take over the manual control of your car and drive you somewhere else? You know, you get into these really, really interesting scenarios.
0: Well, I think the issue of hacking autonomous cars is, is almost inevitable. It's just going to depend on how, how uh, well they encrypt the, uh, the code. But going back to the issue of safety of autonomous cars, that seems to be the biggest issue that people talk about. Recently, Google, which is kind of leading the, uh, the pack of autonomous vehicle technology, Recently uh, announced their statistics with uh, 1.7 million miles of, of driving. They only had a handful of accidents, and none of those were actually due to an error with the driverless car. So statistically, we're already at a point where we're way safer than than manually driven cars. But one thing that's interesting to me is the fact. I mean, obviously, the idea of driverless cars is probably the most exciting result of this technology. But I see this as, as a bigger issue. Basically, what Google and other companies are, are basically doing is creating a virtual vision, which seems like it could be applied in so many more ways than just uh, driverless cars. I mean, recently we've been seeing in the news stories of, I, I believe it's FedEx that recently announced uh, some, some type of work or plan to, to have driverless units delivering packages to houses using this technology. But it seems like we could also use this virtually represented model of the world to uh, help blind people get around, or you know, other other ways that have you have you heard of any any other ways to apply this technology other than autonomous vehicles?
1: Well, yeah, the blind thing is a, is an interesting point to to raise. I mean, the I guess I'd say that the the specific tech that is being developed for autonomous cars wouldn't necessarily map precisely onto what it is that you would need to, or how you would need to navigate the city if you're blind. But it does raise that question more sort of metaphorically or analogically, where, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we're developing these really, really detailed maps, and if you can you know, enter into a building and you've got some sort of feedback mechanism, whether it's you're wearing a vest that sort of buzzes and indicates that you need to turn right, or whether it's uh, you know, a, a, a kind of um, almost like interactive eyeglasses that you can wear that give you a, kind of an, a, an, a, an electric impulse that makes you realize that you need to avoid something coming up or, or turn right or left, et cetera. I think that those kinds of things would be really interesting to see how they develop. But yeah, I mean, I think that that raises... I, I, so I guess what I'd say is that the actual specific technology, including everything from, from LiDAR to the wireless networking, et cetera, that you see in driverless vehicles, won't necessarily map one to one onto those other kinds of applications but i think that the more interesting point is that absolutely i think that these kinds of as we're exploring i guess what you might just call machine vision very roughly speaking or you know what what other designers have referred to as the robot readable world i think that once you apply that outside of what it means to drive a car and you start looking at yeah, uh, getting through the world while whilst blind, or for that matter, even military applications of getting through a city that you might have inadequate, you know, human maps of, but there might be a digital model of a city that you could you could you you know plug in and use. These kinds of things are also even useful in um, search and rescue if you know exactly what uh, a building was like before it collapsed in an earthquake, um, or if you have an accurate model of the downtown core of a city before some sort of catastrophe occurred, whether it's an earthquake or whether it's an act of war. um, All of these things can can be put to use in really intriguing ways. You know, you're even seeing, I think uh, you'd see it in things like um, autonomous mining technology as well, where you can just send machines underground to perform mining in risky environments, whether it's for coal or or it's for, um, you know, other metals, but, you know, you'll see driverless vehicles um, performing other functions in very different spatial circumstances than just, uh, you know, driving us around cities.
2: So one thing that is mentioned here, but we kind of haven't really honed in on specifically is this experience of being inside of the driverless car when you are not in control of it. So when you are not giving away to the manual driving, which I'm still not exactly sure how you, how this will be. This is getting way too into the weeds, but like legislating that after the fact, you know, you have this this system of autonomous vehicles all hooked up at what point do you give individuals the agency to choose when or when to enjoy the pleasure of driving themselves and when to just sit back and let the car do their thing but i just think that what i want to ask just everyone in in general is what exactly is the problem that we find or that we're so excited about driverless cars solving because in this as i see it it's like it's an incredible technological solution to a thing that isn't, the problem is driving, but we're not solving driving, <laughs> at least as we see it now in like the entire environmental context and trying to find new ways of navigating and designing cities to be less, ironically, anthropocentric, right? Because we're kind of removing ourselves from the task of the driver. We're kind of distancing the agency even further from car caused pollution and everything, but we're still relying on cars inevitably. So and then that you can't take away the fact that a lot of people simply still drive because it's pleasurable. Like, yeah, I think there was some statistic in, in LA that the vast majority of rides are under three miles that people get in their cars just because they need to get somewhere without regarding the multiple ways that they could use to get there. Or uh, the fact that it's a little bit ridiculous to do every do trips on a mile at a hand on in your car when you're by yourself. And but these types of decisions will be even easier to make and easier, even easier to allow if we're not the agents of our own driving. So I'm just wondering how you guys in, anyone in general feels about like the consumer experience and the experience and the physical experience of being in a car and how this may perpetuate other less than stellar future um, expectations for like how we live in cities.
0: I don't really see this technology as a solution to the problem of driving. I see this, I see this technology as a solution to a more efficient use of of, uh, space and time and, and a a safer, a safer environment. When, uh, Amelia, when you and I were at UCLA, uh, looking at some of the projects for the, um, the super studio Mm -hmm. project, um, there was one proposal that actually integrated autonomous pods into the hyperloop so that, you know, you could technically have this autonomous pod, take you around the station. Theoretically, it could also take you around the city, I guess, if, if Hyperloop or some type of larger scale transit program integrated into autonomous vehicle technology um, and, and, and kind of hybridize those two types of transportation. I, I see it as a, as a huge potential for the city and for, for people. I mean, also considering we live in a, in a city where people spend a pretty big chunk of their time in their car. And that time could be spent doing doing things other than just staring out the uh, out the windshield, trying not to rear-end the person in front of you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, w- one of the things that is interesting, actually, about, about how this will change the driving experience. Um, I mean, first of all, I think that most people today who are being raised by driving families are already getting a glimpse of what it will be like, you know, where you see these cars that have TV screens built into the seats in the, for even the people sitting in the back uh, and they can just watch whatever kind of video content they want to see. I think that you'll see that kind of experience will just be waiting for those kids at, you know 20 years from now when they sort of enter into the or I guess they'll be driving they'll be of driving age already but nonetheless you know when they as they kind of hit the sort of uh you know the 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 job market or whatever they'll they'll already be used to that experience and it'll just become everyday life for for everyone. But I also think there's an interesting design opportunity here though, which is that if you are changing what a vehicle is and if it is no longer something where everyone needs to face forward, you know, where there are different design parameters for what it is that you're doing inside as far as distractions or, you know, keeping people from, you know, certain certain kinds of activities that would be dangerous. I think that you basically can just reconsider the vehicle as it's it's just another room. And so if you start treating it as a room that simply takes you around the city you can start thinking of really interesting ways of designing that room. And so you could have, you know, whether it's by allowing people to drink, you know, so there's a kind of bar on wheels to maybe there's a library pod, maybe there's a, you know, particularly media centric one, maybe there's a kind of carpooling pod where you deliberately get in because it's more themed almost like a a speakeasy or a kind of club and you can speak to the other people in there. But nonetheless, I think that what's interesting is that the design challenge then is that it, it will no longer feel like you're getting into a car. It'll feel like you're stepping into a small archigram-like room on wheels that's whisking people around the city. And I think it'll be really interesting to see architects in particular start thinking about the implications there.
0: And it doesn't necessarily need to be limited to just one space That that is, uh, I mean, because the, the networked cars will be working kind of within this orchestrated, you know, um, network where they're communicating with each other, they could even link up and and form larger spaces together. I mean, potentially groups of people could meet together, you know, on a freeway on their way to other locations and, and, you know, connect in a physical way along their commute.
4: You know, I think, uh, or the the other thought I had about what what, uh, Amelia was saying is that, you know, we have people who still like to travel around the country and see uh, see what this country has to offer. And they travel a lot by RV. And so that you could <laughs> see that that would be another way of allowing perhaps the family to connect in a, in a way with, because face it, I mean, I, I like to drive, but there's, there's times when I'm driving oh, long distances, I just really can't stand the idea of being in a car for that length of time. And, you know, like Paul was saying before, you know, there's a safety issue. So we're f- we're getting we already don't like being in our vehicle as it is because we're connecting with our cell phone and we're always looking down. So the idea of completely severing that uh, that umbilical cord to the steering wheel and being able to get on uh, the cell phone and kind of text our Facebook messages about where we're going seems like this would be a no brainer.
3: So uh, I want to go back, if I can, a bit to the article, Jeff, that you wrote, which is about autonomous cars, but it's also about very much how we live in and perceive the city. And I think one of the points you make in it is that these, the, the work that ScanLab is doing certainly is fascinating. And I encourage anyone listening to go watch the video that's linked with the article because it's very, very beautiful. But the, there's this idea that the, the, the cars will see things that we don't see or see things that we can't see, and that it's a parallel universe, right? That it's, a par- it's two parallel cities existing in the same space one of which the cars can see and one of which we humans can perceive and that those, those visions intersect in hopefully a safe room on wheels <laughs> or, or whatever it's on. But we'll have to find the quote and put it in the show notes because I can't find it right now. But there's a, a scientist, a material scientist who talked about how she perceives the world as she walks around. She always sees things in her mind working at the molecular level, right? So she sees things like rust, or um or, or or settling or or dirt you know leaves leaves turning to dirt like and the point i guess i'm making is this this alternate parallel universe does exist already that it's happening in our cities already and we live within it and as architects hopefully we're able to harness it sometimes i also think about urban wildlife and so the notion of cars autonomous cars then becoming sort of like these this other form of urban wildlife you know they're almost alive i find it really uh, really beautiful in a way because it, it it is a sort of other inhabitant that we have to learn to cohabitate with in the city. So the article really raises, I think, some beautiful notions around misreadings of things and seeing things that aren't aren't really there, but they are in fact there if you see them properly. Uh,
1: well, well, yeah, I'll just uh, I guess just briefly I'd say that yeah, well, I mean one of the things that really interests me about this work is not only um, everything that you were just describing, but even the sort of strange existential irony that we're approaching an era where the strangest and, and most alien thing that we will be encountering, which is the, the, the sort of dream life of, of machines and the way that these other intelligences see the, 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 the world around them. The irony is that these will be products that we ourselves have created. And I think that there's something very strange in this sort of era of, of humanity where that is occurring where we will be encountering our own products and within that encounter there will actually be something very almost you know in the in the in the article i refer to the romantic era of european art as this way of documenting humans encountering something sublime and inhuman and beyond, you know, all sort of proportion to what we were, we would be used to, you know, so uh, mountains and valleys and glaciers and, and, and all of these kinds of extraordinary landscapes. And it seems really, really fascinating to me that we're on the verge of almost like a computational romanticism where the new thing that we encounter that is huge and beyond comprehension is ironically uh, something that we ourselves have created. And I think that that's why it's so fascinating to sort of, you know, crawl through the scanner and then turn around and see what the scanner sees. And I think in that, there's this really interesting, almost it's almost like a moment of empathy where in the same way that you can see you know Central Park through the eye of a butterfly, or you can imagine how a spider sees the inside of your house, now we can sort of imagine how these machines are perceiving the environment around them. And we realize, even if you watch that video, they perceive us, you know, and you see these really um, small kind of glitchy moments of silhouettes and those are pedestrians out walking across Tower Bridge, and I think it's really fascinating to, to realize that you know, in, in in the context of this particular art project by Scanlab, you know, you realize that human beings are almost like the, these kind of figments of, of 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 a machine's dream as it as it travels mm-hmm. through the city. And I think that that's one of the more fascinating parts of it.
2: Jeff, I thought it was so great that you went back to the Romantic era, but I also don't think you even need to go back that far. I mean, I, I think we have things like very similar fascinations and parallels to. Art historical thinking, insofar as like pop art movement or something um, even maybe a little bit farther back, but in uh, obsessions with material production through industrial mechanisms. So the idea of endless repetition or being able to see the slight variations in a line of seemingly identical things. I think there's like a similar kind of focus here of finding the art in the machines' representation of how we live our world, our life. And I think it's also something like that we, while we wanted to also touch on the The news this past week that Philadelphia becoming the U.S.'s first city to be named a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Of course, we've got a bunch of other. Of course, we have a bunch of other uh, national and uh, state landmarks that are of the natural world that we think of as like UNESCO World Heritage sites. But that Philadelphia, you know, the the actual city is being named. It I think that that kind of offers a nice parlay into discussions of the lidar technology and being able to find new ways of preservation because. Yes, while this technology is clearly has strong uh, implications for interactivity of being able to map the world and understand it and then engage with the machine that, that interacts with that kind of representation, but it also offers a historical opportunity to kind of cast something as it is in a given amount of time and not make it interactive, but make it preserved in a way. So I'm sure we'll see as more conversations come out of of how to preserve architectural history and heritage in Philadelphia to kind of keep the UNESCO World Heritage Site status strong, that this technology will come in and be used for a bunch of different means, probably also artistic and versions of like, I'm sure there's going to be like an Oculus Rift thing where you can go to like the first Congress or something like that, or like sit in on the Declaration of Independence or stuff like that. We'll just have to get there.
3: Yeah,
1: no, I can definitely see, I mean, one, the yeah, that the LIDAR is already preserving the things that it scans, which is why, you know, you see groups like, there's a group called SciArc, you know, which is not to be confused with the Los Angeles Architecture School, but they use LIDAR to scan, you know, everything from, you know, r- r- ruins in, in Syria to old architectural treasures throughout Europe. Um, but the explicit purpose of that is to hold on to a three-dimensional digital facsimile of the real object, and it's in the name of architectural preservation. But you can also see, you know, you mentioned the Oculus Rift. I mean, you could even imagine if we have these kind of LiDAR-based preserved versions of cities, you know, you could imagine taking a car deliberately down an older digital model of the city, almost out of a kind of strange scanner-based nostalgia for buildings that are no longer there, but are preserved in a much older digital model and seeing how cars react to those kinds of things. I mean, you can imagine a, a number of different interesting, whether it's an art project or whether it's some kind of, you know, high-end tourist experience, you could imagine these kinds of models being put to use in really interesting and strange ways.
2: Yeah, when I think when you said that kind of the historical opportunity of using historical representations of Oculus Rift records or records of the LiDAR technology then transposed into an historical setting, I immediately thought of like someone teaching, uh, learning from Las Vegas or something, and then re-representing, not that we can do this with LIDAR because we didn't have LIDAR (laughs) when, when the, in the heyday of the Vegas trip, but recreating that and then experiencing it in the, in the means that it was supposed to be experienced via a car and then leading your students down that path. And like, I guess basically all that we're, we're dancing around is like, we just all want to time travel and to experience these realities and these urban spaces as they were in one space or in one time. And uh, it, now we're just we're getting closer to at least imagined realities of that.
1: Um, just, just briefly, I know I know that we we're, we're we're running out of time. But one of the things that I think is 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 interesting, especially in some of the research that uh, the professor Nurbox from uh, Carnegie Mellon mentions in the article, is that some of the things that might be designed will actually be specifically designed for lidar, and so there's the chance that we might find that we have to rethink the use of certain architectural materials because they negatively affect the navigation of vehicles relying on things like lidar where it's either it's too reflective and therefore causes navigational errors or you could imagine turning to certain materials precisely because they are better at interacting with the same scanners that the driverless cars are using and so what will be really interesting is to imagine the flip side of all this so you know taking on an architectural project where you're exploring a level of detail that can be picked up by scanners, but using certain materials that might mean that you know it's 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 a high level of detail visible to humans, but because it's surrounded by a reflective material, it's it's invisible to lidar. What would that building look like? You know, why would we design things like that? Um, you know, what are the opportunities for architects to think through materials, to think through detail and ornament, and to even to think through the the very use of the architectural facade? When it's no longer human beings looking at that building, and I think that that level of design is actually is another one of these things where we just literally don't know what's going to happen, and it, it opens up a whole series of design briefs that I think will be really exciting to watch unfold over the next decade or two.
0: Jeff, do you have any uh, specific predictions of how this technology will affect the our urban environment and our um, architectural environment beyond what we've discussed in regards to? Uh, you know, less parking space and, you know, maybe uh, uh, a different kind of network of roads in, in our cities.
1: Well, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, somewhat cheesily, I guess I'd say the one thing I'd be really excited to see is just being able to use more of the built environment for human purposes. Um, you know, one of the things that always blows me away is that the automotive industry, to a certain extent, gets a, an unacknowledged spatial subsidy from our cities. Uh, we basically give them all of the space so that their products can be used. And we would never dream of doing that to other industries, you know, where, you know, we design our cities for the use of, you know, the blender industry or, you know, any other number of industries that produce a certain product. Um, You know, we've kind of reimagined cities as showcases for this particular industry. And I think if we end that spatial subsidy and we start giving it back to human beings and, and the kinds of things that we could be doing in the street, even if it's something as silly as throwing a baseball with a friend. I just think that that kind of thing will be really interesting to track um because we're you know we're sitting amidst effectively unused space that for some reason we are convinced we need to donate to the automotive industry and we really don't need to do that anymore and I I I guess that's the thing I'm most exciting excited to see. You know, and I guess you are seeing a little bit of that already with people, you know, rethinking streetscape design even in places like here in New York um or I was in Chicago the other week and it was interesting to see intersections being expanded so that pedestrians, you know, had uh, proportionally more of the space given over to their own activities. And I, I really, really, really encourage that trend. And, I, and I'm excited to see that continue to develop. And I, I'm hoping that driverless cars will, will play a role in that.
0: Nice. Well, I think uh, that's a good note in this uh, discussion on. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Jeff.
1: Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for, thanks for having me.
0: Just out of curiosity, um, I, I know you have a book coming out um, early next year, uh, a burglar's Guide to the City. Is there any uh, connections with with this uh, type of stuff that we were talking about to this uh, upcoming publication?
1: Uh, well, I guess I'd say conceptually, I suppose that there's a connection which is that you know what I wanted to do with a burglar's guide is look at architecture from a very different point of view, which is that you know where someone like myself might look at a building and see an indication that it's from a specific historical era or, you know, that it was designed to supply, you know, reference to uh, a particular movement in architectural history or simply that, you know, um, the a lot of craftsmanship went into the construction of the building. But, you know, there are other people out there that see those architectural details in in, in a very different way. And those are burglars. And, you know, what they're looking for is something very strategic and something that's very tactical and where you know, um, what I, when I see architectural ornament, they see a handhold that they could use to get to the second floor, or where I see a very deep, recessed front door that is reminiscent of some kind of, you know, um, architectural era in European history, what they see is a good place to hide. And if you really kind of take that insight up in scale, you start realizing that there's a way of looking at the built environment through the eyes of criminals and the people who track them, that really kind of changes your attitude towards buildings in general. And so if we're talking about looking at the city through the eyes of driverless vehicles, I I guess you could say that the book is just an attempt to look at our cities through the eyes of criminals and to, and where you see opportunities and, and vulnerabilities where you might not have normally perceived them.
0: Very interesting. Very cool. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, we hope you can join us again on an upcoming episode.
1: All right, cool. Yeah. I'd love it. That'd be great. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Thanks Jeff. Nice having you.
0: All right. Well, that's our show. Number 43, third of our second season. Thanks for joining us, and if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about our podcast, you can reach us on Twitter at our new Twitter account, ArcSessions, that's A-R-C-H sessions, or with hashtag Archonnex sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArchConnect. and if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. And if you're wondering where our interviews have gone, make sure to subscribe to our new podcast, ArchConnectSessions sessions one-to-one we release a new interview each Monday. So you need to subscribe to that podcast separately to have those automatically downloaded on your device. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.